You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. I'll be your host today. My name is Sloan Simmons. I'm a partner out of Lozano Smith's Sacramento office, the co-practice group leader of litigation, and uh, enjoy student work as well as when things cross over with our special education experts like the two folks who are with me today. Uh, first, Marcy Gutierrez, um, one of us, our longest practicing special ed attorneys and expert statewide, a co-practice group leader for special ed, and not your first rodeo in terms of a podcast, but your first since COVID hit. So welcome back. Thank you, Sloan. I appreciate it. And also uh, with us from our outstanding special ed practice group, also uh, a student issues attorney, Colleen Villarreal. Welcome back to Lozano Smith. She returned midway through the virus. Am I getting that about right? What was the timing? Yep, just about halfway through. Halfway through. Colleen was with us for many years before dabbling in some uh, some administrative hearing practice work and uh, uh, some lead litigator roles at the Department of uh, Alcohol Beverages. What's ABC? Alcoholic Beverage Control. Alcoholic Beverages Control. Um, no need for that around this office, right? No um, need here. <laughs> yeah. The... Uh, this topic we're going to go into today and is is one that I think is on a lot of folks' minds. Um, and as we kind of jump back into the the podcast uh, circuit again uh, after a hiatus due to the virus, um, this one in special ed is one that's on a on a lot of districts' minds. And that's ultimately the nature of the FAPE obligation uh, as we're starting to understand it by way of OAH decisions during COVID school closures and distance learning as well as how that interacts with the legal obligation to provide compensatory education um, if there's been a failure to provide FAPE, what OAH is saying about that, and what experts like you two uh, would advise and, and, and guide districts through how to address this issue as we, as we look forward. So um, it's great to have both of you here today. Let's start with Marcy. Uh, what is, can you describe for our listeners, the, the FAPE obligation in terms of when schools were closed due to COVID and or distance learning. So when they're limited, had limited openings during the COVID pandemic. It's a really important question. And the short answer really is that nothing has changed. Um, Whether we are talking about the period of school closures or preschool closures, or now as we are returning to schools in person, um, we school districts have always had the same obligation and the obligation has not changed. There's been absolutely no waiver. School districts have, the obligation to make sure that they are providing students with special needs an appropriate program that allows them the opportunity to make meaningful educational progress. So we're talking about the Rally standard, the NDRF standard. Um, early on, you know, there was lots of discussion about whether or not there would be some sort of waiver to this federal obligation to make FAPE available. Sloan, every case that has come out um, has said no. You know, the obligation to provide FAPE during school closures, there's been absolutely no changes to it. So I think you know, this is an important topic to, to, to look at. And I think talking about some of the cases that have come out will, will help us. But the topic of comp ed is very relevant. So, Marcy, with when COVID hit, um, I know you've explained to me before, there were kind of a series of uh, guidance or directives, either between the governor's orders and then CDPH and CDE. Can you just briefly describe kind of what those orders were back in the spring of 2020 that laid the groundwork for saying FAPE remains in play? 
I think it's important to look at that groundwork that came out in March of 2020, because every single decision that has been published, including one that just came out just a couple of weeks ago, walks us through this exact timeline. And what happened and the framework that we're still operating under is in March of 2020, the governor issues an executive order that basically required the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services here in California to develop guidance that made sure that students with special needs would receive a FAPE during the period of school closures. Shortly thereafter, both of these state agencies did develop guidance, um, and CDE in its guidance made clear that there was no waiver from the federal government to um, ensure that our students here in California had a FAPE. So whether we're talking about the United States Department of Ed or the State Department of Ed, um, the guidance that has come out in March of, and April of 2020, and that's the guidance that we're still operating under today, basically has made clear that there's no waiver to the FAPE obligation. Colleen, before we talk about the comp ed uh, remedy itself and how it kind of interacts here, I think you'd mentioned that there's there was there's a slight little nuance from some of the guidance from the feds early last year. Can you talk about that kind of little that little window of of relief that the the, the feds described in their guidance? Yes, recently we had a, a case that had come out, an OAH decision that had come out that had referenced the U.S. Department of Education informal guidance indicating that if a school district was closed to all of its students totally, meaning no no provision of education via distance learning or the like, that the district, the school district would similarly not be required to provide education um, or a FAPE to students um, with IEPs. And we've seen that play out in a recent OAH case decision where for the limited period of time, just a few weeks where the school district was closed to all of its students providing zero um, education during that time period of mandatory school closure. Um, the district was not found to be required to provide compensatory education for services missed to its student who required a FAPE during that time period. However, as Marcy indicated, because there was no waiver, these time periods of when school districts were not providing anything we found to be very, very short in duration right. because schools quickly had started providing um, education via distance learning and the like. One more bird walk, Colleen, before we go down the, the cop ed road, and this is for either of you. You know, we're recording this podcast in early June. Uh, California is looking forward to in the coming week or so some degree of the quote unquote reopening. Uh, not exactly clear exactly what that will look like across all areas, including as it pertains to schools. Um, as we talk about this issue of the provision of FAPE during closures or distance learning, and we look forward to the fall with the expectation of, of near complete or at least dramatically more open schooling around the state, would we anticipate the possibility of any type of revised or new guidance in this area as we look ahead to 21-22, or uh, is it really going to remain um, stable as to what's been in place since last spring, knowing that what we're ultimately talking about here is remedies at the end of a period of FAPE either being provided appropriately or not, and if we get back full in the, in the fall, these issues won't be as concretely at issue for districts. You know, we've been seeing updated guidance issued sometimes on a monthly basis, right. sometimes on a weekly basis. Right. And even, you know, just a few days ago, there was some new guidance. However, the, the updates really aren't making any changes with the general framework that we're talking about right now. Um, I can't imagine any changes to this framework, this framework being that there's the obligation to provide faith 
there's been no changes to it during this entire time. So even though there have been um, updates <laughs> published, the updates don't specifically change uh, the obligation to make sure that we're providing FAPE. So I can't, what we're really focused on right now, though, is just being aware of the um, decisions that are issued by OAH in terms of comp ed. Yeah. We're watching these decisions like a hawk because we want to make sure that we are up to date on providing the most current legal advice to our clients. Um, and looking at these OAH decisions are absolutely critical because they're giving us sort of um, a lens into how judges are looking at the issue of comp ed. Uh, makes sense. So, Colleen, with um, comp ed, can you kind of provide us a, an overview of how compensatory education works, how it fits into the IDEA framework? Yes, definitely. So as Marcy had indicated, um, school districts are required to provide a free appropriate public education to students, students with um, disabilities under the IDEA. And so this is our offer of FAPE, where the district has found to deny that uh, offer of FAPE or the provision of FAPE to students, school districts may be responsible for equitable relief, which is compensatory education. And basically what that is, is had the district provided um, the services that were FAPE to begin with, what services are now needed to make up for that loss? And that's what we're looking at in terms of comp compensatory education. Now, what we found over um, the cases, as Marcy is likely to discuss, is that this is not an hour-per-hour hour remedy. So if a student should have been provided 200 hours of specialized academic instruction um, over a certain time period but did not receive that, the judge is not likely to grant a remedy of 200 hours, but will look at what progress should have that student have made with those services over that time period um, and where were they at and where are they at now to determine what that equitable relief truly is um, owed in terms of compensatory education. So that might be, um, there's no mathematical calculation. It might come out to two thirds, it might come out to a third, it might come out to 10 hours, um, but it will be the judge to make that determination based on the factual basis that comes before that ALJ. I'm glad that you mentioned that term equitable factors, Colleen, because in one of the most recent cases that just came out a couple of weeks ago, um, the judge looked at these equitable fa factors in a manner that was favorable to the school district. I know lots of you out there have, have just been working very hard to ensure that you're able to meet the needs of all of those kiddos that you educate. And the judge noticed that in this particular case, the judge said that the equitable factors actually lended in favor of the district, meaning that, you know, the judge noticed how hard staff was working to ensure that some sort of education was provided during school closures. And I have to say that I really appreciate that the judge did focus on that. And by noting how hard the staff had worked during the period of school closures, um, the judge said that because of that, the, the compensatory education award was reduced. Um, so that was that was one part of that case that was favorable. Even though there was comp ed that was ordered, the order was lower than it perhaps would have been because the judge did notice um, and, and take specific notice of the fact that the staff had been working very hard. So, Marcy, you're, you're heading down the road where, where I think our listeners would really benefit from hearing. But why don't uh, let's talk about some of the OH cases that you've seen that you've been that the Lazon Smith SPED team has been tracking. I'd also be curious if there are some general principles, and Colleen, you may have kind of hit these. Are there some, I don't know, if we were to look at certain points that are going to always apply in this analysis that you're you're getting from these cases, is that something that uh, is easily summarized? Or if you think it's easier to just go through some of these, these cases, whatever you think the best way is to describe, how are these issues playing out? 
Well, there there have been a number of cases that OAH has have has issued um, regarding um, distance learning. In general, I would say that all of them have been generally disfavorable to school districts, meaning that in each one of the cases here in our state of California, judges have found that during the period of school closures um, in April of May of last school year, um, that FAPE was not provided and that commensurate education was was therefore necessary. That being said, while they were disfavorable, the, the combat orders have generally been very low. I mean, we're talking, you know, in one case, for example, 40 hours of compensatory education, even though the student, according to the judge, had missed, you know, hundreds of hours of education out in the community. So that was, we're not, we're not seeing high orders of combat. Um, there are definitely some markers that we want to look at, and Colleen and I can talk about them. And when you look at these cases, you know, the, the judges are asking, you know, is the school district able to implement the IEP exactly as it was developed prior to school closures? Another question has been... Um, in developing any new IEPs for students during distance learning, has staff, you know, unilaterally decided to just reduce services? There have been questions that judge, obviously in every one of these cases, the judge is going to ask, you know, has the student made progress towards their IEP goals or have they shown any signs of regression? And there's also been questions about access. You know, can students access the technology? Can they even access their education if they're at home? Um, and then finally, I think another, um, you know, fifth marker that I've, that I've seen noted in the decisions is what was the manner in which the IEP paperwork was developed when school closures went into effect? Was there an actual meeting which included the parents in the process or was an IEP developed without including the parent and um, just sort of developed outside of the IEP process? I kind of think those are some of the main focal points that have been looked at in these decisions, though. Um, but I know that Colleen has, has taken a look at some of the um, specific remedies that have been ordered, at least with respect to one of our recent cases. Yes, I, I think that um, those are exactly the markers that we would be looking at. Ultimately, the award of, of compensatory education is fact-specific and related to what is reasonably calculated to make allow that student to make progress over the time period. Um, what we are discussing with our clients is really looking at um, ensuring that they have that measurement that is needed. They're collecting that data. Where did we start with a student? How has a student progressed? Are you continually tracking that? Um, as Marcy indicated, can we provide services over virtual learning or distance learning that are commensurate with our FAPE obligation? Uh, and in doing so, the the judges are really looking at um, whether the district was able to do that and to what extent they were, and we're seeing the reduction, to the extent that COMPED is awarded, we're seeing a reduction based on the affirmative actions of school districts to ensure that FAPE is provided to the best of their capability, given the situation that was created by COVID. Now, am I hearing you, too, as you describe some of these recent cases, looking at the closure period, April, May of 2020, do we anticipate further OAH cases to begin to flow out from the fall and spring of 2021 based on the distance learning environment as opposed to full-on, the more tightly closed period at the end of last school year? We're definitely expecting to see that. And I think that this uh, recently in this last two weeks, we have seen one of those decisions. But prior to that, the decisions were focusing on like the April, May of last school year. We now have one decision that looked at the entire last school year period of distance learning. 
I also want to point out that our um, our firm represented a school district back in the fall of 2020, where I, on an issue of assessment, where a parent was um, had indicated that they did not feel safe um, having their child assessed in person. Um, but the school district in that case felt that it was um, incumbent upon them to comply with their FAPE obligations and their child find and their assessment obligations. They presented the family with an assessment plan to assess that student in person. And the judge in that case uh, did find that the school district uh, was allowed to assess that pers- that student in person, excuse me. And so we kind of feel like that some of these decisions are pretty consistent with one another. But that was a, a decision that we think is important to share because um, while we're talking about comp ed, there's also been questions about um, how districts meet their assessment obligations during periods of school closures. And, and that was one notable decision out there that I wanted to highlight for for our listeners. Remind me if the district wants to assess, a district wants to assess, and parents refuse to cooperate, is that the, can that be the the end of the process at that point in time, or is it is it, is it thereafter the district's obligation to take the next step and go to OAH and seek to compel that assessment to take place? Well, it sort of depends upon the facts. Um, for example, if it was an initial assessment for a student that had never been eligible for special education, the district has absolutely no obligation to pursue the due process procedures. Um, however, in those cases, we definitely recommend doing a prior written notice regarding that dispute over assessment. Um, for students who already have been eligible for special education and the district has presented an assessment plan, first of all, there has been no waiver of the timeline to conduct these assessments during this period. Um, we've been advising districts to to strive to get these assessments completed um, in a manner that's safe and that also um, addresses the students' needs to be assessed. In some cases, there may you know we may advise clients to um, pursue the due process procedures to obtain the assessment that they feel is necessary so that they can ensure that they're able to assess a student and, and address their needs. But there may be a, some some limited cases where we would find that that would not be necessary to pursue the, the due process procedures. Um, again, anytime there's a disagreement over assessment, we would definitely recommend doing a prior written notice. As we look ahead to 21-22, and also anticipate that districts will also be having to look behind as the potential due process cases alleging the denial of fate for the last year's closures or this, this fate period. What are some best practices, that, you know, guidelines that you would be uh, giving to districts as to how to be ready for and as best as possible address the issue of retroactive potential fate violations and compensatory education, as well as separately best best practices looking ahead to 21-22 and assuming a, a more broader and consistent reopening of schools statewide. I'll knock on wood for that as a parent. Yeah, this, yeah, me too. I want my kids to go back to school in person. Um, and I know that some of our schools already are, but where my kids go, they're, they're not back in person yet. And it's a hard question. It's a really hard question. I, and Colleen and I were talking about this today. We, we have some pros and cons we want to share with you here. I think first I want to start with the fact that the U.S. Department of Education um, has issued guidance regarding comp ed, and so is our state. And it basically says that when students do return to school in person, school districts have an obligation, an obligation to determine on an individualized basis whether or not compensatory education is warranted. So the guidance is out there. And that's clearly what it said since, you know, March or April 2020. We've, we've had that same marching orders. But 
God, we, you know, we've been talking about it here, um, you know, how to advise our clients when they're, you know, in terms of comp ed, do we want to take that affirmative approach consistent with the guidelines? Are we going to wait until a parent requests comp ed? Uh, what, do, what do you think, Colleen? I think that we've been talking um, about all the options for our, our own clients um, and, and weighing the pros and cons. So for the affirmative approach, that is um, typically done through, uh, you can do it through the IEP process where you involve the parent in, in the communication. The IEP team, as you all know, is the most knowledgeable about the individualized needs of the student. They can talk about that data that they've been collecting over this time period um, and basically discuss where the student was, where the student is, and if there needs to be any catch-up. Um, the IEP team can then decide, is there catch-up to be done? And the district can decide at that point whether it's going to make an op- offer of compensatory education or learning loss mitigation through the IEP process. Uh, a, a pro of that is that you're involving the, the parents in the process. You're involving the most critical IEP team members, the people who know the student the best. A con would be that if you do do it through the IEP process, you, know, you could trigger say put. If you're including that in an IEP document, that IEP document can move from school district to school district and potentially tie another district um, onto that that compensatory education award. There's also the option of having that discussion in an IEP meeting and then the district making an offer of a learning loss mitigation, compensatory education outside of that process. Having had the team already discuss that there might have been some loss, then, then making an offer to the parents based on that discussion. Um, a con might be that the the parents didn't have direct input on the, the number, if you will. And um, ultimately, if you've had that discussion, you've involved the parental involvement, or you've had that parental involvement. Um, another option is uh, waiting, right? Waiting for a parent to ask for it. The Benefit to that is is that you would know what exactly the parents think um, in terms of what learning loss there is. Is it academic? Is it behavioral? Is it a, a related service such as speech therapy or occupational therapy? And then determine how to address that moving forward. But I think what hangs kind of hangs out there is when we're talking about potential learning loss during this this COVID closure the, the, uh, or the period of virtual learning, is how does that impact school districts um, in the long run? If we're saying that, yes, maybe there is compensatory education owed, um, is there, does that then cause a someone to consider, well, is there more? Should the district be doing more? Should there be litigation? And so um, that's another potential thing to consider. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think these questions are different because it depends, you know, For you out there, are you already back to school in person? Have you not returned back to school in person? I think for some of our school districts who've already been um, returned for in-person, they're perhaps in a little bit um, easier position with this particular topic. I know a lot of the districts that I'm working with that are back in person, for example, are offering extended, extended school year programs to try to catch students up. And some of those same districts are doing assessments and, you know, not full-blown SPED assessments, but probing and, and data collection on a monthly basis right now to really track progress. And so um, I know one of our uh, districts up here has decided that at the end of summer and perhaps right at the beginning of this, this new school year, they've decided that they're going to send some sort of written communication to families to sort of summarize, you know, where they are with respect to that particular student, you know, 
dear parent, um, as you know, you know, we have this period of school closures. We've been back in person since X. We've done these extra things for your student during this time, such as, for example, the extended, extended school year. And then based on the provision of these additional supports, um, we believe that your student has, you know, made progress on, on their goals, if that's the case. So, like I said, for some of our students that are back in person, they're in sort of a position to be able to do that, Sloan. But I, I know as, as we roll into the new school year, we're definitely going to be connecting, uh, obviously, with all of our clients, but certainly with those clients that um, are in the position of just returning to school in the right. fall. Right. Um, why am I not surprised that this seems like a very helpful and articulate discussion by you two? I hope uh, it is. It's complicated. It is. <laughs> it is. But I think uh, entirely uh, relevant and really important for our districts to be thinking about this uh, right now and, and likely something, well, inevitably something that they're either already grappling with or are going to be grappling with for, for the near future, especially to the extent that there might not be due process cases filed until, what is it, a two-year statute of limitations yeah. when they, they come around. So yes. always appreciate talking to you two, either on a podcast or in the hallway. <laughs> um, Glad to be able to see you in the hallway. Yes, <laughs> so thank you, Marcy. Thank you, Colleen. Excellent. Thank you. Um, we'll look forward to the next talk. In the meantime, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you. any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.